One of my worst nightmares as a child was getting stuck on a merry-go-round, spinning, spinning, round and round, fun at first, but unending no matter what I did or how loud I protested in that dream, not being able to get off. Now, that occasional nightmare became, on one occasion, a brief reality, one time at a drive-in cinema. Now, if you don't know what that is, that's where people used to get in their cars to go to the movies, and it's outdoor. And so while the parents would watch the movie, all the bored children would get out of the car and start running crazy around a car park. Well, no, it's okay, because there was a playground down the front underneath the, the screen, and all the kids would congregate down there, and it was, you know, a bit like Lord of the Flies. And indeed it was, because that's what happened one night. Uh, one night, uh, six of us were huddled in terror on the hand-moving, the old steel and timber ones, if you can remember these, uh, merry-go-round, six small children huddled in there while the bullies on the outside just moved it faster and faster and faster and just laughed and, and mocked our fear. It ended dramatically when one kid panicked and jumped off and took a blow to the head and, well, the bullies ran off and the rest of us just, you know, wept in relief. But it wasn't really over. It wasn't really over. Because now that I've grown up, I find that being trapped on a merry-go-round is the sad reality of our human existence. For here we all are, spinning round and round on this planet with no way to get off and pain all around. Sure, there's moments of delight and fun bits along the way and people we get to spend some time with for a time, some lovely people often, sometimes, but still dizzy and confused with local, domestic and international bullies laughing and mocking us, making life harder. We just seem to watch with sickening regularity as people fall off in front of our eyes and the remainder just we just shrink back in fear, don't we? Now, sure, that, that's an extreme picture, I know, but does your life ever feel like that? Stuck in circumstances and situations you, you can't escape. Round and round, day and night, year by year, with, and no help is help enough. Does your life ever feel like that? No, mine does. And, and that's why I hold on to the cross. That's why I hold on to Jesus at the cross. Hold on to him. And that's why I cry out to him for help, because he's not on the roundabout. He's not on that merry-go-round. He's outside. And we can call on him for help. And that's why I wait for him to intervene and rescue me, because only he can. Only he can. And and only he will. And I know he will because of this. Because of this. This book, this testimony of how God has intervened and rescued us in the past and how he promises to intervene and rescue us in the future through his son Jesus. And the bedrock of that promise, the the seed of what is yet to come is revealed for us here in our passage tonight, here in Genesis, all those years ago. Because God 
lays down a promise here. He intervenes here with words and he plants this promised seed in these words to Abram, words that then carry us not only all the way to the other end of the Bible, but which pick us up along the way and deliver us a sure and certain hope in the rescue that Jesus will yet supply. So I ask you, do you want to be rescued from the merry-go-round? And do you want to know what to hold on to while you wait? Well, then come with me for a little journey into the middle of the merry-go-round. Because I'm going to show you tonight that steel pole in the middle that you can hold on to for all you are worth in this spinning mess that is, for us, the one place of refuge. One place of refuge while we wait. So, you want to come on that journey? Let's pray and open God's word. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you are the God who speaks into this merry-go-round mess. You've sent your son once. We long for him to come again, but right now we're in the middle of it. and We need hope. We need help. We need to know what to cling on to, not just other people who will fail us, but something solid. Oh, will you show us that tonight? Would you help us to know that we are safe with you? Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Luke's going to come forward. He's going to read for us Genesis eleven twenty-seven to 12, 7. Thanks, Luke. Going to read Genesis. 11, verse 27, and then we'll go to chapter 12, verse 7. It's also on the screen. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur, set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran and they set out of the land uh, set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem at that time the Canaanites were in the land the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring I will give you this land so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him Thanks, Luke. Well, here it is, the account of Terah's line that starts here in chapter 11 and will run through to chapter 25 in Genesis. It's not the longest account in the book, but it's the longest so far, and it's the one that everything will hinge on all the way through to the end of the Bible. If you can imagine the Nike tick, yeah, that's not it, don't worry, I just don't want to bake copyright you know if you can imagine the nike tick the nike tick think of this this account of terrar's line is that bottommost point there where it changes direction and from there everything will change and head in an upwards direction from here on until eternal life is ours in christ jesus this is how the bible works and plays out so the account of the heavens and the earth that we started within this series that's that high point there on the left not as high as it could be or should be, we think, but indeed that's our starting point because we end up way higher at the other end. And across this term, we've been examining every step down through these 11 chapters all the way down the left-hand side of that tick since then. We've covered a few thousand years in that scope of history from Genesis 1 to 11. And at every turn along the way, we've found the people of God that were made to enjoy the earth under him, these people have refused. Refused his sovereignty and rebelled against his provision and care for them at every point. And that's the baseline trajectory set up for all humanity by Adam and Eve. And we read it, we saw it, we looked at it. And yet we've also seen along the way God's judgments in response to their rebellion. And they've been, well, well limited, quite limited he kept them alive when they should have died he kept them from destroying each other when they certainly could have and he kept supplying mercy when justice was certainly deserved and his judgments though severe have all been restorative supplying mercy and intervening and he, he brought their self-destructive evil to an end to a conclusion and he supplied these judgments that kept pushing towards cleaning up this mess and getting things headed in the right direction again. And that's what's kept it, not just, it wasn't just a straight vertical drop from that high point. No, it's been moving along because God keeps moving it along. We saw some of this last week, didn't we? As Sean opened for us. The Tower of Babel and the plains of Shinar. We saw exactly one of those restorative moments as God did this, as he spoke 
into their chaos, their darkness and death, and spoke words of life, hope and a future that pushed things in a new direction. And so now here we are, uh, the focus now shifts to this account of Terah's line, and we find that God speaks again. God speaks again. Uh, Why to them? Uh, Why to these people? Well, because the genealogies there in chapter 11 and 5 that we've studied, they reveal to us that Terah was descended from Shem, who was a descendant of Seth, who carries the bloodline of God's promise from the curse of the fall that will one day be overthrown by a son who comes from the bloodline of Eve. We saw that promise back in Genesis 3.15, didn't we? And because God is so committed to his plan to save us, because God is committed to that plan to save us and to bring creation with us into the freedom and glory of the children of God, because he's so committed to it, God now speaks again. He speaks again, speaking to intervene again into our merry-go-round of futility and death and speaking in a way that moves things again toward that saving outcome. And yet this time as God speaks to intervene, did you notice how different it was as Luke read it out from the times we've heard before? It was so different, wasn't it? It wasn't a word that creates or commissions like we saw in chapter 1. It wasn't a word of rebuke or curse or condemnation like we saw in chapter 3. It it wasn't even a restorative judgment. It it wasn't a command for all people to obey like we saw in the period with Noah. And it And it wasn't just in response to something that people had done, like we saw in chapter 11, no, with with Babel. It was something totally new. We've not seen this type of God speaking in the Bible so far, and now we do. And it's unprovoked, undeserved, unasked-for word of promise. A word of promise. And it's spoken to one man this time, one man in this family line of terror, one man who with his farmless family had remained in the vicinity of the Tower of Babel. Long after the descendants of Canaan had moved on and the Jephthites had moved on and established other lands with their unique languages and tongues and tribes, God speaks again into that spot. Ur of the Chaldeans speaking to Abram, this single command laden with promises, overflowing with undeserved blessing. Recorders for us there in 12 verse 1. So go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Let that command sit with you for a moment. Hang on, just feel the weight of that. In fact, picture in your head, if you can, for just a moment, your, your country, your home, your, your family, all the people you know and all the possessions, everything, everything you've got. And now imagine walking away from those things, those people, those places to never return again. And then add again that you don't even know where you're going or when you're going to get there because... God didn't reveal the destination was Canaan until they arrived. Imagine the level of trust it would take to obey such a command and renounce everything. John Calvin wrote of this command of God. He said, it's kind of like God saying, 
Go forth with closed eyes and renounce everything you know and love until you've given yourself wholly unto me. He's nailed it, hasn't he? Go forth with closed eyes, you don't know where you're going, and renounce everything, everything you know and love until you've given yourself entirely, wholly unto me. And what did Abram think of such a command? Well, there wasn't time to think yet about that because God said more than just this command. He continued saying, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, now that's not a bad set of perks, is it? Not bad at all. God's supplying what you know, the people in Babel, remember they wanted to make a name for themselves? Now God's saying he's going to be responsible for doing these things. God's going to supply it. And so on the weight of one command versus eight blessings, oh, God's generosity is clearly greater than the cost he was asking. And we're not told what Abram thought about these things, but reading on, we can see that just like Noah before him, who was commanded to do something totally outrageous, Abraham listened and Abram obeyed. Well, did it pay off? (laughs) As we read on, past chapter 12 of Genesis, we find that Abram saw very little of these promises fulfilled before he died. Very little. Yes, it's some, but it's very little. In the New Testament, Abram will actually be commended as the man of faith who did not receive the things God promised, only saw them from a distance and welcomed them from a distance. In in the middle of this merry-go-round of life and death, Abram didn't see many results, but he still held on to this seed of God's promise. He lived on that seed of promise. And his life and the life of all those around him was transformed and now focused entirely upon that word of promise. Because it's a seed of a promise that he discovered very quickly was powerful then, And we know is still powerful today. For with the record of the Bible before us, we don't just get Abram's life. I mean, he only experienced, right? He can only see what happened in the next day. But for you and I, we can look back on the entire thing and we can see the fulfillment of these promises to Abram. And that they find their fulfillment beyond his lifetime and even beyond the lifetime of most of the generations that followed. And in fact, even today, we've not yet seen the full and total completion, the consummation of these promises, there is yet still so much more to come. How do I know that? Well, because we read it in the Bible. And and through the Bible, from this moment on, this seed that's planted here in Genesis 12, we notice this promise becomes the guide rails of the highway and the line down the centre that we follow all the way on down the rest of the Bibles that will unfold and If you were here in this church last year, we did 19 weeks looking at these promises to see how they play out, because indeed they do. 
And it's kind of like these little rest stops along the way where we find these partial instalments along this highway. Really? Yeah, let me remind you of a couple of them. That's how it works. So the promise of land to Abram's offspring, how does it play out? Well, well, Abram owned nothing, nothing more than a burial plot by the time he dies. 500 years later, some 1.5 million descendants of Abram will leave Egypt and travel to the land of Canaan and take possession of it, just as God said they would. And though they will eventually be thrown out of that land by God because of their rebellion, God again will return them to establish and re-establish the temple in Jerusalem that Jesus will later come along and replace entirely the temple with his body. And as God's temple, Jesus is the only place in the heavens and the earth through whom we can come to God. And it's in Jesus' body called the church that brings together all nations by his spirit. And what's Jesus doing? Well, he's gone to prepare a room for us in the heavenly city that he will supply for his people when he returns. That land, that land that God called Abram to, the one he saw from afar with eyes of faith, oh, that's the heavenly city that Jesus rules over eternally. And it comes about because God keeps his promises. But what about that promise of many descendants, a great nation? Now, that one's got to be fairly tough, doesn't it? It's a tough job to fulfill this because we're told here, remember, that Abram's wife, Sarah, was barren. She wasn't able to have children. And he's a 75-year-old man. Now, I'm not having a shot at 75-year-old men, but there's not many of them becoming you know, fathers. It's, it's a very rare thing, right? But God kept his promise with the birth of Isaac, the miraculous birth of Isaac, who begat Jacob, who supplied 12 sons to become the 12 tribes of Israel, and that one and a half million who returned later to claim the land out of Egypt, well, that's them. But again, there's a twist. Because God will later declare that not all Israel are Israel. Not all those who have Israelite blood in them are Israel. And he restricts the number, God declares and restricts the number to only those who are faithful to him like Abram was faithful. And tragically, not many of those Israelites were. But God sustained them, sustained them still. And he kept the bloodline of Judah alive because he's committed to his promise to deliver this. And he keeps that bloodline alive until Jesus comes, who is the seed of that promise the seed that the promise had been pointing to all along. And what does Jesus do with this number of God's children? He explodes it, dramatically increases it, the number of God's faithful children, but he doesn't do it through reproduction, through his body, not by making children with a woman, but by adoption into his name at the cost of his blood. And in, in this way, by this method, by adoption, Jesus expanded the family of Abram to include people from every tribe and nation and language through the proclamation of the gospel, gathering us in, not into national Israel, but into the church. And it's the same church which Christ promises to return 
to rescue from the bullies when he comes back and wipes every tear from our eye. Why? Because God keeps his promises. And that extravagant promise of blessing to Abram, those eight blessings, and and blessing not just him but all who associate with him, well, read on in Genesis and watch for it. Watch God keep his promise to bless and sustain Abram against every adversity, even against Abram's own sin and foolishness. And this is the one that Abram saw a lot of. Because of God, Abram will be blessed and blessed indeed. Tragically, his descendants will mostly fail to be a blessing, though, to all the other nations because of a selfish desire to hoard all good things for themselves. Actually, that sounds familiar. But they eventually succeed in blessing the nations. They do eventually succeed in this when they crucify Jesus. Palm Sunday, we're celebrating, leading to the cross, where they'll call out, crucify him, crucify him, and through the shedding of his blood, they will trigger the carrying of the gospel to all nations as the blessing now spreads. In the name of Jesus, the lost are gathered in, the elect are found from every nation and blessed by God's sustaining hand. Unlike any people on the face of the earth, blessed. Blessed how? Well, blessed with the assurance of forgiveness. Blessed with eternal life now already in our possession in God's family while we wait for the return of Jesus when he will place us on the throne beside him to rule eternally on his throne with him. Why will he do such a thing? Because God keeps his promises. Do you see it? The strength of the center of this, from the the bottom of that Nike tick here in Genesis 12, all the way to Jesus, all the way beyond To our time, we have here the record of God keeping his promises against all opposition. Against all opposition. Friends, that's why why his word is the safe place at the middle of the merry-go-round. It's the only safe place. Don't try and get off. No, no, come closer. Come into the middle. Hear the promises of God. Dwell on them and come and meet the promised seed himself in God's Son, our Lord Jesus, the Word made flesh. And he's ensured that these things are recorded for us so that we can hold on to them. His intervention into that merry-go-round of Abram's life back then, well, not only did it sustain his life and transform his life, but it's likewise made life bearable then. And now, and a life that will be redeemed eternally. Why? Because God keeps his promises. So what about... How did he receive this intervening word of command and promise? Well, we know already, don't we? Abram obeyed God. He obeyed. Verse 4. So, Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. 
Thanks, Abby. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they'd acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. And when I hear that and when I first read that, I pictured in my mind there's this lovely old couple seated on a camel with their you know, nephew Lot hitched up behind or maybe on front, like you know, sitting on the front of the, the petrol tank of your motorbike, a bit like that. Maybe there's another camel behind being led with their baggage. and It's a wonderful picture of a pair of grey nomads and their nephew heading out on a bit of a holiday, isn't it? It's a lovely picture. It's the one you find in most of the kids' Bibles too. You know, grabbed some maps from the travel agent, booked their transfers, got some foreign currency, and off they went. And, and indeed they did. But travel back then was a little bit different. No GPS, no travel maps, no motels along the way, no, 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 no. Well, and the distance they travelled, well, Haran into this part of Canaan that we're reading about, it's 1,300 kilometres as the crow flies. But of course they didn't walk as the crow flies because not only is there topography and rivers to get around all kinds of things to move amongst, but also they had actually no idea what the destination was. So they weren't directly heading there. They're wandering around waiting for that moment when God says, oh, by the way, you've arrived. When will we get there? Imagine that question. I actually have no idea. When God tells us we've arrived... And how many were there? Well, it wasn't just the three of them. Best estimate of their travel party size was something approaching 900 people. That's actually what we're talking about. This is like a town moving along, driving in front of them, their herds and their flocks, everything they're going to live on across this journey, carrying everything they own. This is no small event. And we have no idea how long it took. But we do know they arrived. And we're told when, and the reason they know they've arrived is because God intervenes and he speaks again. Verse 6, Abram travelled there through the land as far as the side of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So while Abram's taking a moment to do a bit of sightseeing at the pagan shrine at the great tree of Moray, Abram sees and hears a whole lot more than he bargained for, doesn't he? And his response to such a vision, to such another word from the Lord, confirming his promise, what does he do? Well, he desecrates the pagan site by building an altar to the true Lord of the heavens and the earth. Abram's actions were clear for all to see. This is God's land. This is God's land. And besides digging a few wells for water as he lives in that area, the only permanent markings Abram will make on the ground anywhere in Canaan will all be altars dedicated to God. But more important than what he built was what he said. As we read on, we find he called on the name of the Lord at these altars, calling on the name of the Lord and by doing so, Abram publicly proclaimed the name of the Lord in which all people can be saved. Not just him, but through him a blessing to all nations, including these Canaanites. Including the people who were there. All 
God had spoken his word of promise. And now Abram responded by proclaiming his faith in the God who speaks and sharing that widely so that through him all people in the world would be blessed. Friends, that, that's what it looks like to call on the name of the Lord. That's what it looked like then. That's what it looks like today. Simply declaring that he is Lord. Calling on him to act and to do as he promises. It's the right thing to do. It's a generous thing to do because it's declaring truth where there's only darkness and chaos and death. But it looks weird and it sounds weird, doesn't it? And it flies in the face of everything that's, that's there, both for him then and for us today as we try and say these things, spinning on this merry-go-round we call life on earth. And it's what we get laughed at and mocked for, for holding on to these things. But friends, being anchored, being anchored here on the promises of God and inviting others to receive, to join us in those promises, just like Abram did, oh, this is where we must stay. This is the safe place we must stay. Anchored on the promises of God, standing on the promises of God, living on the promises of God, trusting that he will be faithful to these promises and will rest his son as he has declared. For just like Abram, this land in which we live, this merry-go-round called Australia, it's not our home. It's not our home. It's as beautiful and as fun as it might be sometimes. Let's not forget that we're strangers here. We're aliens here in Bulli. We're strangers and aliens in the northern Illawarra. We're awaiting God to come and fulfill his promise to bring us into a better country, a better one, the heavenly one that he has prepared for all who trust him. So I ask you again, do you want to be rescued from the merry-go-round? Do you want to know what to hold on to while we wait for that rescue? Then gather with Abram. Gather with Abram and all of God's people around the promises of God that are fulfilled for us in Jesus and Jesus alone. God's promises are that steel pole in the centre. They are that one safe place of refuge while we wait for his final intervention when he speaks again and sends his son to rescue us. Well, how do we respond to that? We say, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Amen. God keeps his promises. We need to stay anchored in those promises. And we know that he will bring those into being because he loves us. 
because he's made a way for us through his son. How deep the love of the Father, that's what we'll sing about as we sing our last song tonight. Please stand.
please be seated. Thanks for gathering with us tonight. If you've been on Zoom tonight, please hang around and talk and encourage other people that might have been listening also. And just to remind you, uh, Good Friday, 9am, we're back here, 5pm for Easter.